Chapter 11 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 11, The Tiltyard. Meanwhile, the procession was pursuing its slow course towards the tiltyard. It returned by the route it had taken in coming, but it now kept on the north side of King Street, which thoroughfare was divided in the midst by a railing and deeply sanded. Here, as in the area before Westminster Hall, not a wall, not a window, not a roof, but had its occupants. The towers of the two great gates were thronged. So were the roofs of the tennis court and the manege, and the summit of the cockpit. The latter, indeed, was a capital position, inasmuch as it not only afforded an excellent view of the procession, but commanded the interior of the tilt-yard, no wonder, therefore, that great efforts should be made to obtain a place upon it. Nor is it surprising that our old friend, Madame Bonaventure, who had by no means lost her influence among the court gallants, though she lacked the support of Lord Roos, owing to the absence of that young nobleman upon his travels, it is not surprising, we say, that she should be among the favored individuals who had secured a position there. Undoubtedly, she would have preferred a seat amongst the court dames in the galleries of the tilt-yard, but as this was unattainable, she was obliged to be content, and, indeed, she had no reason to complain, for she saw quite as much as those inside, and was more at her ease. From this exalted position, while listening to the inspiriting clangor of the trumpets, the clattering of arms, and the trampling and neighing of steeds, Madame Bonaventure could scrutinize the deportment of each knight as he issued from the lofty arch of the Holbein Gate, and rode slowly past her. She had ample time to count the number of his attendants before he disappeared from her view. As Sir Jocelyn Monchensey approached, with his visor raised, and his countenance radiant with smiles at the cheers he had received, she recognized in him her former guest, and participating in the general enthusiasm prevailing for the young knight, she leaned over the parapet and addressed to him a greeting so hearty that it procured for her a courteous salutation in return. Enchanted with this, she followed with her eyes the graceful figure of Sir Jocelyn till it was lost to view, to reappear a moment after in the tilt-yard. Turning in this direction, for all her interest was now centred in the young knight, Madame Bonaventure allowed her gaze to pass over the entrance of the lists, and she soon espied him she sought, in conference with Prince Charles and some other knights of his party. Near them was stationed Garter King-at-Arms, apparelled in his tabard, and mounted on a horse covered with housings of cloth of gold. Glancing round the enclosure, she perceived that all the foremost seats in the galleries and scaffolds, set apart for the principal court dames, were already filled, and she was quite dazzled with the galaxy of female loveliness presented to her gaze. Behind the court dames were a host of fluttering gallants in rich apparel, laughing and jesting with them on the probable issue of the contest they had come to witness. She then looked round the arena, Stout barriers of wood were drawn across it, with openings at either end for the passage of the knights. At these openings were placed all the various officers of the tilt-yard, whose attendance was not required outside, including eight mounted trumpeters, four at one end of the field and four at the other, together with a host of yeomen belonging to Prince Charles, in liveries of white, with leaves of gold and black caps, with wreaths and bands of gold and black and white plumes. At the western extremity of the enclosure stood the royal gallery, richly decorated for the occasion with velvet and cloth of gold, and having the royal arms emblazoned in front. Above it floated the royal standard. Supported by strong oaken posts and entered by a staircase at the side, 
this gallery was open below, and the space thus left was sufficiently large to accommodate a dozen or more mounted knights, while thick curtains could be let down at the sides to screen them from observation if required. Here it was intended that the Prince of Wales and his six companions at arms should assemble and wait till summoned forth from it by the marshals of the field. There was a similar place of assemblage for the Duke of Lennox and his knights at the opposite end of the tilt-yard, and at both spots there were farriers, armorers, and grooms in attendance to render assistance if needful. On the right of the field stood an elevated platform, covered with a canopy, and approached by a flight of steps. It was reserved for the marshals and judges, and facing it was the post affixed to the barriers, from which the ring, the grand prize of the day, was suspended, at a height exactly within reach of a lance. Like the streets without, the whole arena was deeply sanded. This was what Madame Bonaventure beheld from the roof of the cockpit, and a very pretty sight she thought it. All things, it will be seen, were in readiness in the tilt-yard, and the arrival of the king seemed to be impatiently expected, not only by the knights who were eager to display their prowess, but by the court dames and the gallants with them, as well as by all the officials scattered about in different parts of the field, and enlivening it by their variegated costumes. Suddenly loud acclamations resounding from all sides of the tilt-yard, accompanied by flourishes of trumpets, proclaimed the entrance of the royal laggard to the gallery. James took his place in the raised seat assigned to him, and after conferring for a few moments with the Conde de Gondomar, who formed part of the brilliant throng of nobles and ambassadors in attendance, he signified to Sir John Finnet that the jousting might commence, and the royal pleasure was instantly made known to the marshals of the field. The first course was run by Prince Charles, who acquitted himself with infinite grace and skill, but failed in carrying off the ring, and similar ill luck befell the Duke of Lennox. The Marquis of Hamilton was the next to run, and he met with no better success, and the fourth essay was made by Buckingham. His career was executed with all the consummate address for which the favorite was remarkable, and it appeared certain that he would carry off the prize, but in lowering his lance he did not make sufficient allowance for the wind, and this caused it slightly to swerve, and though he touched the ring, he did not bear it away. The course, however, was considered a good one by the judges, and much applauded, but the Marquis was greatly mortified by his failure. It now came to Sir Jocelyn's turn, and his breast beat high with ardor, as he prepared to start on his career. Keeping his back to the ring till the moment of setting forward, he made a demi-volte to the right, and then gracefully raising his lance as his steed started on its career, he continued to hold it aloft until he began to near the object of his aim, when he gently and firmly allowed the point to decline over the right ear of his horse, and adjusted it in a line with the ring. His aim proved so unerring that he carried off the prize amid universal applause. End of chapter 11